Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is the multi-award-winning novelist, children's writer, playwright, and screenwriter, Carol Lewis. Carol was a wonderful guest, and I'm so pleased we got a chance to speak as part of her press tour for her debut novel in the English language, Drift. Carol's writing is so incredible that not only did her book, Martha, Jack and Shanko, win Wales Book of the Year, but it's also taught on the Welsh school curriculum. How cool is that? Very excited to see her published in English. Uh, There are also English translations of her other books available, so do seek them out. Or just learn Welsh. It's a beautiful language. Either way, this interview took place on a lovely sunny day back in March 2022. A happy, simpler time. Let's go there now. And this week, I'm joined by Carol Lewis. And my first question, as always, is what are we drinking? We're very rock and roll. We're drinking lemon squash today. We are indeed. <laughs> and it's not as warm as it has been, but it's still a nice, refreshing drink. And I think for it's, an interview, it, yeah. It's, it's beautiful today. And yeah, I mean, I also live in the middle of nowhere. So driving, mm. you have to do a lot of. <laughs> so um, harder drinks are kept for evening consumption only no. around here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's absolutely fine. And is this a drink that you find that you drink whilst writing? Is this a, a regular go-to or is it just because it's such a hot, lovely day that's a bit of different refreshment? It's because it's my favourite squash. I drink a lot. I, I drink a lot of tea. Um, okay. really strong earl grey tea as well okay. when it's a bit cooler yeah um, which is probably no good for my teeth really but <laughs> it's my caffeine go-to because <laughs> i don't yeah. drink coffee <laughs> okay no 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 that's great and i drink a lot of squash myself i, I just find i get a bit bored of water but it's important to drink yes. a lot of water so yeah <laughs> yes, having absolutely. a bit of squash you know makes it a lot easier and yes. where i'm speaking to you now is this your writing space at home it is. I'm okay. in my office upstairs, which is in our farmhouse in Mid Wales, halfway up the mountain. And I'm looking out over the Welsh hills. Oh, lovely. <laughs> very inspiring, very evocative, I think, as well. It's nice to just have a rural landscape, I think. And how long have you had this as a writing space? Uh, have you always had a separate room for writing, or is it a recent thing? Um, I used to write at the kitchen table. Pre-children, okay. <laughs> I used to do that a lot. And then I found that the chaos was escalating <laughs> with each extra child. And I would find notes scribbled on my work <laughs> and um, sticky figures of things going missing. Um, yeah. So when we redid part of the house, I decided to have an office. And the reason it's upstairs is because I live on a farm and yeah. I also help out with food when farmers are here doing jobs so I can choose when to take a break and come down rather than being interrupted all the time um, which is important for me with the flow of the thing but my desk is actually facing away from the window okay um, because I think if I had it looking out I would never ever get any writing (laughs) done at all yeah (laughs) and on your desk do you like to keep it fairly sparse or do you have like little mementos and like talismans that sort of help inspire the project that you're working on it's a complete mess (laughs) (laughs) absolutely complete mess but I like to I work on several projects at the same time usually so I usually have a mixture of 
research books. I'm trying to look now. I know I've got yeah. pens and pencils and hairbrushes and <laughs> and a million notebooks and oh. some children's drawings. And yeah, it's it's quite chaotic. I won't oh. lie. <laughs> and so, do you have a notebook for each project, or do you have a notebook for say characters, one for world building, one for snapshots of dialogue and little concepts? How, how do you? <laughs> break up your notebooks that's an interesting question I do have separate ones mm. but weirdly I tend to have just like a current notebook okay. where mm, ideas for all the projects I'm working for at the moment live it's it's almost like a currently what's in my head notebook <laughs> yeah. rather than a separation of this is this project and this is this project it's ongoing business okay <laughs> kind of thing so with that, is there like a contents page? This book is on page 14 and this book is on page 20. Or do you just make sure that you have no. a dedicated page? <laughs> I wish. So it, it's all absolutely splat everything in a massive jumble, <laughs> but it makes okay. sense to me. Okay. You have your system. You know yes. where things are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's great. And uh, yeah, because I think a lot of authors I speak to, they tend to have like the initial concept stage just percolating in their head. And when it's like ripe or ready or feeling fresh, that's when they go to paper. So it's really fascinating to hear that at that concept stage, you're already making notes. Does that help solidify the concept to you? Is that sort of helping build a structure around it? I think about things and then make just brief notes you know these are not fully formed these are just maybe images or mm -hmm. feelings even that kind of thing and then what I tend to do then is ignore the idea it's a bit like working with a horse I don't know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got a really um, grumpy Irish cob that is supposed to be for rounding sheep okay. and he sometimes you need to turn your back on an idea and let it follow you around rather than looking directly at it because <laughs> I think things dissipate when you look at them too yeah. rigidly or too starkly and I think just let it follow you around for a while and then you make a series of realizations um, yeah. along the way and these are the things that I might note down here and there but it can take years it can take months in some cases but it could take years mm. um so it's just that kind of percolation of an idea and making these um realizations along the way yeah. um, but i don't have a notebook by the bed that's the one rule i do have because I think there is a reason why you forget those ideas in the middle of the night. Because yeah. <laughs> I think if an idea stays with you, then it is supposed to, because your imagination is an incredibly good sieve. Um, right. And it will get rid of the stuff you don't need over time when you're writing something. I tend to make my notes in the day. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, it's a bit of a, a joke cliche that writers, oh, yeah, they have these notebooks by the the edge of the bed they think like, oh this is an amazing idea I've got to write it down they wake up in the morning and go what the hell is eat gloves why have I written eat gloves so <laughs> blue hand so yes it's yeah I think what people think of as late night inspiration is just like, gibberish yeah and actually waiting until your mind is sharp and you can actually articulate yourself it's quite important. And I think it is something that writers learn eventually. But it's always nice to be reminded. And so it sounds 
that like the thoughts and feelings are kind of where the story starts with you and it's a, a sense of tone that you want to inhabit do you find that then formulates into a particular character or a space do you find that you start world building and then populate it with characters or you come up with a character and go where does this person live where, where are these events taking place I always start with worlds okay um, I fall in love with places and the textures and the colors of those places and yeah. the feeling of those places and then it's not about randomly coming up with a character who didn't have that space, but it's about finding a character with an umbilical connection to that space anyway, because I think that's how you make books that yeah. ground characters that, that are believable in that the character comes from the place. You don't impose the character on the place, yeah. unless you're doing that deliberately, which I have done in the past. But it's about growing from that world and what you're trying to say with that character. But I find that when you're writing in two languages, or I have written a lot in, in the Welsh language, that character, language and place are all so intertwined that... Yeah. You can't separate them. So when starting to write in English, it was trying to navigate those differences, really. But definitely with worlds and letting the world speak to you. I'm a big believer yeah. in, rather than going to a place and speaking at it, which yeah. I think <laughs> is what a lot... <laughs> yeah. It, it has been done to Wales in particular. It's actually spending time in a place and listening to it, you yeah. know, and... and adopting its voice so that's the kind of approach I take that, that's really fascinating and I think yeah you're right that people tend to place things on top of a space and rather than having well actually no you, you do get authors that uh, the setting is almost a character in itself it's not something I read a lot of but you're, you're absolutely right that is a very evocative style to do where you mentioned there obviously you've written in the Welsh and English language are you a first language Welsh and do you write all your notes in Welsh? Yes I'm first language I very rarely speak English not at all at home so okay. it's just outside of the house or when yeah. I'm speaking to somebody and, I, and it's interesting because some of the notes for the English novels have been in Welsh but it, it's not consciously done it's just something that you do without realizing it really so it's uh it's something that you do because you're speaking with yourself somehow. Yes. and bilingual kind of suggests a, a level playing field but i don't think that's true particularly when there's such an imbalance of power between both of your languages and there are a million ways in which we drift in and out you have a, a bi identity and it's how those languages play together really yeah it's a new thing for me to learn but at the same time I think I fell for a, a lot of the cliches around language and your writing voice in that people will tell you that you have one language for feeling in and another for thinking in or that you're a different person in every language that you speak but I think fundamentally you're the same person you're the same you have the same values you have the same world outlook it's yeah. just that that's expressed slightly differently in both languages. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's really interesting, having one language for feeling. And so I guess it must be quite frustrating sometimes when writing in English and like, I know the word in Welsh. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think when 
you know, sort of working in a different language or you know, sort of your non-native speaking language, the poetry of the language and having the the cadence and the flow to sort of like evoke pacing, whereas yeah. sometimes it's just you know, the, the events have to happen. So did you find in your editing of your first English language book, Drift, that to get the stylistic elements of your author voice, there was a lot more redrafting to do? Was it more of a challenge to, to get it to say, yeah, this is a Carol Lewis book and to feel confident that it had your author voice? Author voice. I mean, what was interesting to me was people have described, those who have read it, have described it as lyrical. And in Welsh, we have this system called Kanghanet, which is a, an old um, poetic system that we have in Wales. And, and it's all about internal rhyming. So if you're writing a poem, it has to rhyme and there are rules. We are taught them in school that literature needs to sound as good as on the year as the messages. It needs to sound beautiful. And we take A-levels. So there are, there are you know, that seeps has always been there in the way I write prose in Welsh. And yeah. then when I started to write in English, people saying, oh, it's so lyrical. But for me, it felt freer. Yeah. Because I didn't have to think about those things. So I think there's a definite um, difference and a definite way that you use the language. And I, I read an English at Durham and I, I remember the tutor saying I could pick out your essay even with no names on them, but just because of the rhythm or the way you use the language. Yeah. I, I think that's a second language thing, but it's, yeah. I don't think I overthought it. I thought yeah. that the best thing is to do is just, just get it done, get it out there see what it feels like and it felt strangely similar in many ways yeah and you've like say you read English at Durham you've had access to English you've known the English language for such a long time was there something particular about the story that you felt with Drift that you felt this needs to be in English or was it just I'm going to write my next book in English what was the motivating factor for, for Drift particularly to be written in English? There, there were a few factors, really. The first one was, I think, the inevitable invisibility of writing in a minority language. Mm. I think few people could probably name a Scots Gaelic writer or a, a Catalan writer. There's always going to be that level of invisibilities. And I started writing in the first place because I was brought up by a lot of strong women and mm. I didn't see them portrayed very much in the books that I read, the Welsh literature books that I read. And I decided I'm going to be the first girl to go to university and I'm going to write them into books. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's what I did. And then I turned 40 <clears throat> a couple of years ago <laughs> and we lost both of them, my grandmothers. Oh. And I had this intense feeling of the invisibility again. And I felt that, you know, very, very few Welsh language writers also write in English. You can count them on, you know, a few fingers. Yeah. And I just felt we need to be recognised and broaden what people think of as yeah. Welsh language mm. writers. We, you know, the brilliance of Wales is that mm. we have two literatures. Yeah. We have two languages. Yeah. And I think just to take a seat to the table and have these conversations and then the, the novel itself came from running an errand in a local village and hearing a guy, you know, speaking Welsh with a yeah. really distinctive accent and finding out he was from Aleppo. Oh, wow. And, and then it spiraled from there. And what 
I loved about his story and his take on things was that he, he didn't have any preconceived ideas about the value of learning a minority language. He had taken refuge here and saw learning Welsh and he speaks fluently as a natural part of integrating and respecting the land that took him in and of integrating himself and his family into the fabric of society. And he saw language as something that, and I think sometimes we think, oh, learning a language should bring you financial rewards or it should Mm. give you job opportunities or whatever. But but he saw the homemaking value of the language. And I just thought that was so brilliant. And and I think there is a a horrible trope around Welsh, any minority language, that you're somehow insular or that Mm. somehow that you're narrow-minded or whatever it is. But I look at my children and their friends and they have six languages between them. Wow. And the the one they speak most often together is Welsh. Yeah. You know, they have Hindi, they have Spanish, they have French. Yeah. Um, But the ones they speak together is Welsh. And I just think that it's such a wonderful thing. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence the areas where the high percentage of people speak Welsh voted to stay in the EU because they have a natural affinity to small countries with different languages. So um, yeah. it all came from there, really. And wanting to write something that spoke about a modern um, image of Wales and to show that Wales is a colonizer and a colonized country and yes. the discomfort of that and the difficulty of that and the prickliness between the two languages. And it's about having useful discussions and bringing representation to the table as well. Yeah. It may just be a, um, a symptom of getting older, but discussions about Britain's imperialist past and in that specifically the exporting of the English language and uh, English values and having to confront that and as we're doing this interview, Russia's taking a uh, stand to try and reclaim a lost empire, and it's mm-hmm. not going well. But it's just as outrageous as the Western majority of the world is, this is what Britain used to do. You're just seeing it with modern weapons on television and on the internet. But yeah. all the outrage that people are having is just this is what Britain used to do. And yeah. people used to say, oh, but you know, the, the British... Yeah, empire was great. It wasn't all great for all people. <laughs> and <laughs> and I think there's more, certainly from my perspective, that, that there's a willingness to learn about the problematic elements of the past. And I think, like you, you were saying there with Brexit, that there was a idealistic view of a perceived past that was based on the winners, not based on the reality yes. and based on privilege rather yeah. than on empathy and understanding. And how from being this great power and actually retreating from Europe and actually becoming smaller and people actually, you know, waking up to the fact of just, oh, we're not as influential as we used to be. People aren't (laughs) listening to us. And actually, France is doing a lot of what we used to do. (laughs) And Germany is, you know, the power head of Europe. And it's just, oh, we've lost our place at the table and yeah Yeah. these conversations about where people stand in the world and yeah I think it's really fascinating that for people who are outside of Britain coming here and then going to Wales and going 
this is the language that everyone speaks. Okay, this is the language I learned. And mm-hmm. not seeing that there's a hierarchy and people say, well, you'll earn more money if you yeah. speak English or yeah, there's yeah, more yeah. prestige in English yeah. because that's a narrative that's been forced for many years that yeah, sort of English is somehow better because it's spoken by more people. But I love the fact that this, someone comes to a corner of the world and just, I want to integrate. So this is the language that speaks. Yeah. And I think a hot topic at the moment is in Wales is changing the names of houses and farms Mm. and because they're difficult to say. And it's such a a difficult thing because it's cultural Mm. erasure. It's taking the long view. Mm. We are taking those names away from our children and our grandchildren. But again, it's this kind of attitude of speaking at a place rather than listening to it again. Mm. And it's so problematic. And I think Mm. it's fair to say in the past, so many kind of tropes around Wales and Welshness, you know, being the rugby and the daffodils and the sheep (laughs) and the quiet and the, you know, the slightly daft characters, a bit stupid. And it's infantilization of culture. Mm. And this is what happens when somebody else is controlling the narrative. Yeah. And they find it really strange. So, again, getting diversity of Welsh writers out there dissipates some of that, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, sort of the best way to understand a culture is to have it represented in front of you. And I think, yeah, that again, these are conversations that seem to be happening more. Again, just snapshot in history. We're talking just after the Oscars and Encanto winning Best Animated Feature, and that being yeah. very culturally appropriate, and people sort of from that corner of the world just going, they've done their research. This yeah. isn't just set in America, and a lot of the reviews was, oh, it's mm-hmm. challenging. It's a minority story. It's very challenging to watch. I was like, but it shouldn't be. And what's great <laughs> is for kids, they don't see it as challenging because everything's new. They're just absorbing. So yeah. they're just understanding a culture and they have the curiosity that yeah these old stuffy movie critics don't have it's just making them aware that a minority group exists and yeah exactly what you're doing with the welsh language and welsh culture again i think growing up it was my dominant view on in media and in fiction and in culture was Welsh is the comic relief. Uh, they yep. were always funny characters, silly characters. Yep. Little Britain being the TV show when you had uh, Daffid, the only gay in the village. And you didn't have them as the strong, heroic lead. Christian, again, yeah. that is again, control of, yeah. of the narrative. And, yeah. and it's very difficult to break that down. Yeah. And, uh, and it's very difficult to, but the only thing you can do is A, to write in your first language. And I've done that for a long time. And I've tried to provide works that will hopefully stand the test of time. Some of them are the curriculum, Welsh A-level and this kind of thing. But I think also, I think this is what I realised, that actually the the conversation needs to go wider and need that representation. Because if I read another book about Wales and the wild, empty hills, (laughs) I might just about scream. Because the hills aren't wild and empty. There Mm. only was an empty if you're blind to a culture and a language yeah. because those places are full of history and the history of yeah. its people. Yeah, it's frustrating, but it's also a great, great thing to get involved with and try and shift even in a little tiny way if you can.
I want to talk to you more about genre with your books. Do you want to incorporate more fantastical genre elements in there? Or uh, do you feel that human interest and you actually want to sort of have an authentic portrayal of Wales as you see it? Um, well, what I think is really interesting about this is if you write in Welsh, in, in the Welsh language, you write everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a strong culture of eistedd fodau, which are cultural competitions that we have every year. From the age you can get on the stage and recite a little poem and are massively respected. To take part in eistedd fodau, you might uh, write a poem. Yeah. You will present a prose piece. You will maybe do a, a script for a stage play. You will also do some kind of dancing. You, you'd present a piece of artwork. Yeah. Um, and this kind of goes on. There's the Ear of the Steadford until your early 20s. And then there's the National Steadford that's held every year. So weirdly, in Wales, a writer is a writer. Yeah. So it, it's tempting to say, oh, it's, it's all economical. You, you write lots of things because that's what you need to do in a minority language to make a living. Yeah. But that's not entirely true. It goes deeper than that. And there's a concept in Welsh called a pithai, which means the things. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, it's not very poetic, is it? But what it generally means is in the arts. Um, and if you're interested in one kind of the arts, there's a presumption that you will be interested in all of them. So you have schools very early to embrace all the genres and all the different um, kinds of writing. So I found myself in... In my Welsh language work, I, I write, I'm a lead writer on a crime series that's sold to 60 other countries. And then I write picture books. <laughs> I write, um, I'm probably most well-known for writing novels and adapting those sometimes to film as well. So I bought the sensibility to the English publishing world a bit naively, really, because I didn't realise that you tend to go down one lane and stay there. So I found that a bit strange to start off with, but I have a great agent who, who allows me to, to be who I am as a writer yeah. and write different things. But it, it, I think it's an interesting cultural difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I recently had a conversation with an author about how often English writers when they're trying something new, if they're going to a different genre, they're often suggested to have a pseudonym. And yeah. it's just, oh, you, your audience will be confused because they've got to associate a, your brand. And yes, working in a minority language, it's just, I just want all, all of the markets. So yes, I'll, I'll write kids <laughs> books, I'll write uh, drama, I'll write plays. So yeah, that's very different. And again, it's, it's my ignorance, but that's really useful to learn. I think it's healthy, dare mm. I say it, for writers, because you're not sitting there thinking what's my next adult novel what's my next you're not winding yourself up every yeah. day about it it takes the pressure off because you're working in different spheres and you can allow ideas to grow yeah and it, it naturally i think also means that you'll have longer periods between writing say adult novels yeah if you're doing other things in between and I think sometimes that's a good thing. You don't want to write too much. It's because what have you got this new to say? Yeah. You need to grow to write well. You need to have experiences. You need to grow as a person. You need to go through some stuff. And yeah. um, 
I think sometimes that pushing, especially when you're starting out or that you're young to produce can be, you don't want to burn out. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely something that I I like to say. And I think people who sometimes aspire to, to be a published writer, the length of time it can take to produce a full length adult novel, they fall at the first hurdle. Because after a couple of weeks, oh, I want to be done by now. It does yeah. take a long time. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. also just talking about the fact that you, you work in what I'd perceive as many different genres and, and styles of writing scripts and children's books and things like that. Do you approach them in the same way? We were talking earlier about you, know, sort of you come up with the world building first. Um, do you have a, the same approach to a script as you would a children's novel and yes or or what are the differences in your approach to to those projects i begin with a central idea and then i will let them percolate it's slightly different if you're working in a team as per a crime show or something like that you tend to have more face-to-face meets and there's more storylining going on and that kind of thing but i've been really lucky in the projects that i've worked on they've allowed me pretty free reign to colour in the characters and to give them some depth which has Mm. been brilliant but I think it's you know it's the same approach you just have to respect the genre you have to respect the reader and you have to respect a four-year-old child reading a a picture book as much as an adult reading the latest novel it's all about doing diligence it's about research it's about doing the best you can and enjoying what that genre can give you and experimenting and playing with it as the years go by but it's yeah it's the best job in the world (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I think you just touched on something there about researching the genre because Mm -hmm. a lot of people when they think of writing research it's oh it's a crime book I might need to speak to the local police station about the police procedures and just like learning about different investigative techniques and or the classic thing of forensics and learning about what could be done there but actually the tropes of a genre and what the audience Mm -hmm. expects and how Mm -hmm. they're structured how they're paced like you say with a four-year-old they want a familiarity and uh, repetition and making sure that they don't get confused and that they can easily grab the the concept. With that, is there a genre that you have yet to write or you're about to write that you're really interested in researching and learning about? I'm doing something slightly different with my next novel because, you know, that when you stop learning, you might as well stop writing. You don't just know. And I'm just playing around with the voices in that in a way that I haven't done before so so that that's really interesting to me genre wise I think what writing different genres as you do in the Welsh language allows you to do is to find out pretty quickly what you don't like and it also allows you to um, you know working on this crime series is to investigate the tropes and then undermine the tropes hidden is the series it's not a who done it it's a why done it okay and then it looks at themes of rural poverty, not the Welsh Tourist Board version of Wales. <laughs> it's the it's people's lives and neglect and rural poverty and these mm. kinds of themes. So it's, it's taking a genre and finding something fresh in it, yeah. hopefully. And that's what you've got to do, really, I think, is just to find, find the difference in it and find yeah. what's going to make it engaging once again. Yeah. You've got to know the rules to break them. I think. Yes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and to play with an audience, with Hidden, what we do a lot is really spend time with a bad guy and play with the audience's kind of perception of what is a bad guy. W would you have done the same at the same situation with the same pressures on you? And just the morally ambiguous ideas around evil. And that is more interesting to me than let's run up here and shoot somebody. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> yeah. not my kind yeah. of crime. You know, so so it's, um, it's such a joy because there's always something new. Yeah. And with researching sort of crime, for example, have you got books on like how to write a crime novel or, you know, <laughs> crime writing for dummies? Or is it more <laughs> of just absorbing as much of the genre as possible that you read loads of books or watch loads of crime fiction to, and just through osmosis just go, oh, I can see the patterns. So do yeah. you like to, to learn in a more like natural way or do you actually have how-to guides? Interestingly, I think this is controversial. Okay. <laughs> I find it's really important to know your stuff. You need to read the classics of the mm. genre. You need to watch a lot of crime, but not too much because I think you can find yourself really easily emulating people and, and trying to maybe react off something rather than actually what I want to say. Sometimes it's good to look inwards as well yeah. rather than try and gain inspiration from the outside so it's knowing your stuff it is making sure you you watch enough but not yeah. overwhelming yourself to the point yeah. where you you feel like you've got nothing else to add to it, <laughs> you know yeah and on the series we had a chief inspector and he was great as well because he he knew that it's also a television program but your dna results are not going to come back in a couple of hours you know what I mean? yeah but he could he would allow us to kind of, you know, yeah, you could get away with that because otherwise it becomes incredibly restrictive yeah. um, to the point where it kind of spoils the story. But I remember once uh, writing my second novel. I needed to know how quickly strychnine would kill somebody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a really funny conversation. Yeah. With my GP, who thought maybe just I like, had the some marriage issues. is fine. My marriage is fine, but just on, just on, just you know. But yeah, I mean, I love, I love all that. What's brilliant about it is people love to talk to you about it. You know, yeah. their job, and you will have so many details, so many more than you asked for. Lots of yeah. about poisonings and things yeah. like that. But it's yeah, it's great, and. With um, a lot of research, a lot of notebooks sort of planning out the the world and uh, the characters, with your actual plot, do you write a very strict, structured outline where you have the beats, or are you more what's known as a pantser of just you know, write, writing by the seats of your pants and just sitting down and going, okay, I want to get here. I've got like an end goal in mind. Let's start writing and see what happens. <laughs> I don't make many notes on plot at all and I think that's just my style really yeah. that's just the way I've always done it I will write on a piece of paper one to 60 the numbers and then maybe a word or two maybe okay. but they tend to be not plot developments but feelings or symbols yeah. or maybe a snatch of dialogue something yeah. like that and then I won't start writing until I've written three quarters of the novel in my head when I do sit down it's it happens really quickly the actual writing of the work and thank god <laughs> that I actually work like that because yeah. 
with three kids, if I had to sit down, write a chapter and then have to do it again and rewrite it and rewrite and then do another second, I don't think I could have carried on through yeah. having the kids and doing that as well. It just wouldn't be possible. So it tends to be kind of storm gathers, yeah. sit down and it pours out. And if I'm in one of those moods, it can be 10,000 words a day, but then I may not write then for another three months. I'll be working on other things, of course, but yeah. You know, that's how I approach it. Yeah. So there can still be structural work to do on the plot after the first draft is complete. Not much. It tends to be. The only thing I don't know when I start writing is how it will end. Yeah. Because I know what's going to happen until up to about three quarters of the way through. And then I don't know. Okay. the reason for that is if I actually plotted out yes. everything, I find it incredibly boring to write. Yes. I think it takes that aliveness out of it because I want to find out as well. And I want to realise why this character does this and what happens there. And so it's that's what makes it interesting for me. And then I'll finish the draft. And then it's normally about going back and fiddling in the gaps, yeah. ironing things out maybe taking a thread out putting a thread in and god it's not a finished thing god by far but i think it's just the product of having thought about it for two years yeah you know what i mean and i think if there's ever a time that i sit down and there's nothing there i've convinced myself there's no such thing as writer's block i think it's more that you haven't done enough thinking and you're not ready so that's the approach maybe it's the psychological way of coping with it yeah but but that's what I tend to do I think yeah I think it's easy to avoid writer's block when you have multiple projects on the go because obviously you said earlier there that sometimes you can write a whole chunk and then not write for three months but it's not that you're not writing for three months it's just you're benching that project whilst you're working on other things and then just letting it percolate in the background Mm -hmm. I recently had And this will be interesting for the listeners because I'll probably release these out of order. But I've just had an author talk about composting. uh, (laughs) And so that you put all the ideas out, you mash it all down and then you leave it until it becomes fertile soil and ready for the sprouts of the story to grow. What you're describing there, I feel fits that analogy really well you're a composting pantser if there you go you've <laughs> learned something about yourself today um brilliant <laughs> so so when you go and uh, pick up your kids go, yeah so this is what i've learned and yeah we've gone on many tangents today it's brilliant but <laughs> i will i do want to get on to your daily writing sessions so obviously you've mentioned how you've migrated from the kitchen table to an office working on a farm and having you know multiple kids a lot of chaos around you How do you structure a writing session? And especially when you're working on multiple projects, is it just when you've got a spare five minutes go, right, I'm just going to to my writing desk? Or do you actually go between these hours, no one talk to me, and you have a set allocation per day? Um, It's it's organised chaos. That's how I like to think of it. I mean, lockdowns were a challenge. Hmm. Because obviously I want to give the kids everything that I can. And what I do in the summer is I'm with them all day and then maybe eight to nine o'clock at night, I will start writing. 
and then right to one and two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But I hate working that, that way, to be honest, because my mother was a songwriter and she wouldn't mm. even think about starting to write songs about 10 o'clock at night. And she was just like, she was, she was an owl and I'm yeah. not, <laughs> I only do that when I have to, when I absolutely okay. have to. Mm. Um, so it tends to be when they're at school, I'm, I've finessed the art of grabbing a couple of hours here and there, but I, I think the way my style of writing in that when it comes, it comes in a big chunk helps. And I try and, cause I'm working on different things. I find an hour here or there to do with them, but it's the only time I found it difficult. And I think a lot of parents will relate is when those storms are coming and you're desperate to get this thing down, that's when chicken pox will come, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And to get yourself to the point where you're ready to write it again mm. after you've calamined, lotioned a child for a week and a half yeah. is really difficult to get yourself back in that headspace where you were. And that's the most challenging thing. But right. I mean, on the whole, I fit it around the children and yeah. I try and share it with them as well. I, I try not to tell them to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to go away. I mean, they, they have in the past kind of read under my desk while I'm writing. Oh, wow. And I try and, and normalize it. And they're pretty good in that because they've always seen it. They sometimes they'll just sense and they'll come in and they'll go, oh, come back. And they're, they're quite good like that, bless them. But I did have, when they were younger, a time where I would, this sounds insane, <laughs> get into the playpen with my notebooks oh. or laptop, and then I would let them them run around the farm. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would, I would be, it was like inverse playpenning. Yeah. You know? I would be confined and they would just go for it. So they had quite free range when they were younger. But oh, yeah, all, all good fun. Yeah. So you don't stick to word counts, page counts. So you don't have any sort of like daily targets or anything like of that. Of course, no. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not, because uh, you've had great success. But we've covered it a bit. But with the, the rewriting of your work, once you've got it to a point that you're happy with who's the first person that reads it do you have beta readers or you know do you have anyone that you trust before it goes to an editor um it depends what it is yeah it, it depends what it is i've got a fantastic agent that i send i, I really respect her judgment on things and we have a brilliant relationship where we have a shorthand by now where she yeah. knows what to do and also i think it's a process of learning yourself being accountable yeah. and picking up notes and as i said before it is always a process of learning so yeah. this that and then sometimes i'll send something to my mother because she knows me very well yeah and she's a very good cry indicator and and she can be quite Quite frank, and I will know. She doesn't need yeah. to tell me. I know from her reaction. But as well, I think, back to being accountable yourself, I think if something works or yeah. if it really doesn't, there's no harsher critic of a writer than themselves. And I know when something's not where I want it to be. It bugs me, and it's almost giving it to somebody to tell you what you already know. So it's, <laughs> there's a bit of that going on as well. But, but sometimes somebody will come up with something you just genuinely hadn't seen or hadn't thought of and that's brilliant and when you've got a project finished do you have any kind of 
memento celebration or is it just that's done onto the next or, or yeah so <laughs> pick up something else because some people can feel like a sense of grief uh, when they finished a project they've had that idea percolating and composting for so many years uh, and they've had it for such a long time that not being able to spend time with those characters it feels like a loss some people are just yeah. working to a deadline and it's a sense of relief that they, they don't have to work on it anymore so yeah what's the kind of emotional output when you finish a project and do you celebrate I find myself in more in the bereft camp of mm. things that kind of sad loss and I carry around maybe a copy in my bag for a while it's a bit like like a comforter it's really sad and then as time goes by, you get excited about another project you're working for, yeah. and then you find you've left your little copy at home, and then you go, oh, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. But I try and treat myself to something as a little carrot. <laughs> in, yeah. um, be it something, a book or something, a piece of clothing that I've yeah. admired for a long time. It's yeah. just that little kind of treat and acknowledgement of right you've done that now and yeah. that you can move on I think that that's important and maybe a glass of wine and a night out with girlfriends or whatever and yeah. it's just yeah but it's funny when you're writing there's no office party there's no, no. <laughs> great celebration it's just that you have to be happy that you're satisfied and then yeah. even if you've done all you can to achieve that feeling then you deserve a glass of Prosecco yeah. or something oh absolutely <laughs> um <laughs> My wife's a great one. She always has a bottle of Prosecco in the fridge. It's like, you never know when you need to celebrate, which is lovely. And I'm going to wrap up because I, I wave, you've got a school run to do. So last two <laughs> questions. It's my belief, and well, we've discussed this quite a bit, that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Is there anything you can think of from the last project that you finished that you're now applying to a project you're working on now? Yes, I wrote um, a book called Seed. It's a middle grade fiction book and it's yeah. my first in English. And because of the nature of the audience, that it's much wider. There were some sensitivities that I was unaware of. I think I've applied this new knowledge to the new one. And there are, oh gosh, there's countless things you're always learning. It's bringing the plot further up to the surface okay. in middle grade things. I'm doing that at the moment as well. So, yeah, it's a constant. It's, yeah. you know, every day's a school day. Yeah. And the final thing I'd like to ask, is there one piece of writing advice that you've either read or been told that you find you always seem to return to, that just always seems to apply uh, to your writing projects? I remember my English tutor when I did an MA in writing, Patricia Dunker, the novelist. And yeah. she said, and I think it's important to remember, she said, there are millions of people who can write, hmm. but very few with something to say. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's such a good thing to think about when you're starting mm. out because, you know, to have something to say, you need to have lived experience. You need yeah. to channel something. And and you can sense it when you read novels. That they're good. They're well-constructed. The characters are okay. Maybe a few laughs. But it just yeah. doesn't say anything. You know, it may be yeah. there's nothing meaty. It can feel a bit hollow. Yeah. And I think 
sometimes you have to really look, you know, as well as finding inspiration and reading about writing and all of that, you really have to look inside yourself and think, what is, what do I want to say? What have I got to give? And if you're not giving that, people will sense that Mm. and your work will be shallower than it should be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And certainly that's a common thread. I, I feel that with the successful writers that I've spoken to, there is that conscious thought of it's not just the entertaining narrative and, and the, the story, but the theme. And yeah, yeah. Sort of, there should be a learning for the characters and there should be learning for the reader. And, yeah, um, and the writer. <laughs> and the writer, absolutely. And yeah, every day's a school day. You have to learn, your readers have to learn. And uh, don't forget, the characters need to learn as well. That's great. I'll end it there. Thank you so much for being today's guest. And uh, yeah, I I can't wait to uh, read more of your work. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely lovely. Thank you. And that was the real writing process of Carol Lewis. Wasn't she lovely? I feel personally I learnt a lot in that interview, namely that I need to read more Carol Lewis books. So thank you again to Carol, and for being so generous with her time. I hope you all got a lot out of that interview too. Now, if you want to learn more about Carol, she is on Instagram, so you can keep up with what's going on with her there. I've also linked to her Wikipedia entry in the show notes, so you can see her entire bibliography, although it doesn't have drift on there, ironically. And I've linked to her IMDb page, just so you can check out how much he's done. Now, there's no episode next week. I've learnt after seven months of podcasting that I need a bit of work-life balance. In the past two months, I've been to two conventions, my mother's 70th birthday, had my aunt pass away, suffered with two weeks of COVID, and taken my wife to hospital with a suspected broken ankle after falling down the stairs. In that time, I never missed an episode. Then, before I knew it, Kenobi was released on Disney+. Plus. The Boys on Amazon Prime, and the final season of Stranger Things on Netflix. So yeah, I'm taking a week off, because I have priorities. Might go and see Top Gun Maverick as well. Speak to you in two weeks, thank you for listening, and may you always keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. I will keep you near until the world is you are safe with me.
Shift and pull up the tides Never 